Why does everything break apart? Why is the world marked by brokenness, decay, corruption, crumbling? Why does nothing good ever seem to last? Why do good things seem to be so hard to hold on to? Why is it that everything now in this world, sooner or later, will get robbed from us by either time or circumstance? Oh, we try to cling on, but it doesn't work. Why is everything breaking apart? Alan's already mentioned it. I played footy the other night, and I'm in my mid-30s, and I feel like I'm as good as dead. I'm still aching 48 hours later. And, you know, that's just the onset of age, isn't it? What happens if the big C comes along? I go to the doctors one day, I have a few tests, and there's nothing you can do to fend that off permanently. Death comes to everybody. What about family? Now, I love being around my family, but sooner or later I will be robbed of my family. Either by the fact they move on, or through an argument, or through that terribly painful thing called death. I can't hold on to my family, it breaks down. What about my reputation? I fight for it. I want to look good in the eyes of other people. I want to be known, I, want to have, I just want to be thought of positively. And it only takes one cruel word whispered from one person to another, and all of that comes crashing down. So hard to establish a good reputation, and it's so easily smashed to pieces. What about the stuff I've got? Why is it that as soon as I buy a new car, well, actually, I haven't bought a new car, why is it that whenever I change my car, the year after it's more rusty than when I got it? Why is it that I'm always having to fix stuff? Why is it this morning that I tried to play the guitar earlier and it's broken? Why is everything, all that stuff, breaking? And it's the same on the telly, isn't it? Because there's been the news, on, and it's been all the, the rows and the riots in the, in the uh, Middle East. Why is it that after the great Second World War, somebody wrote that it was the war to end all wars, and the United Nations were formed, I think it was in 1947, and they said, we will form so that there is no more death like this. That was a war to end all wars. We will prevent it. Why is it then that the statisticians and the people who do the sums tell us that there have been more people who have died through war since 1947 than in the whole of world history running up to 1947. Shocking that, isn't it? Why is everything falling apart? Why is it, at the most basic level, it is so hard to hold on to a good relationship? It's hard work. Why is it that we hurt the ones we love the most? Why is there nothing in this world that won't break down, shatter, decay, corrupt, or end in mess? Why is everything falling apart? You see, we sense and know that things aren't supposed to be this way. And so when we heard what Alan was bringing to the kids today, and what we were considering last week, it sort of catches in our throat a little bit, doesn't it? Because you think, God's made everything perfect, but that ain't my life experience. Oh, for just one perfect day, just one. But they elude all of us, don't they? What has caused the world to fall apart and everything be collapsing? See, last week, we were gasping at the beauty of God and his wonderful provision. I mean, we reflected it there, didn't we? You can see it here. Last week, we saw God's glorious kingdom. We saw God's people, who didn't get old and die, who were in perfect relationship, one with another. It was just beautiful, and it was satisfying, and all the relationships worked. 
So much so that they could say that they were naked and felt no shame. There was no hindrance to relationship. There was no fear, no need to cover up, no need to pretend, no need to hide. And they were in God's place. And it was a place of relationship with stuff stuck together as it should. The people were there, they'd been given stuff that was pleasing to the eye and would meet their need. And through God's place, he provided for them. And they wanted for nothing. And they lived under God's rule and blessing. It was harmony. Enjoying things, relating, coming together as they should. Every day was a perfect day. And there was never any bitterness or disappointment or loneliness or pain or anguish or fear. Everything was just right. Why? Because everything was dependent on its relationship to God at the centre. They hung on his every word, and his every word met their their every need. And so already, you can probably pick up and sense, if things are broken, you can probably already sense what went wrong. It wasn't that God dropped the ball. But if you have a world that is dependent that that balances on being in right relationship to God and you move yourself away from there, everything is just going to collapse. So as it says on the little handout there, that is not the world we know, the perfect world of last week. Our world is broken and there's been a great fall. And we said the nursery rhyme, didn't we, a week or so ago? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men. You know the last line. And that's the same with our world. That when we've had a great fall, you can put your best brains on it and it won't fix it. So let's... And I, we've got to get this right. I, and I don't want to miss out... I, Steve, we're just going to spend some time looking at what's gone wrong. Yes, but if you don't do that, if you don't diagnose the problem, you ain't going to get the answer. And my suspicion is, as you listen to this, your heart will sink. And so it should. Because we're not just observing the problem, we're part of the problem too. So let's dig in and we'll have a look, okay? Turn over your sheet onto the second page. What went wrong? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. There was another voice that entered in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, tr- from the fruit, sorry, eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Is that what he said? No, she's already editing God. Because he didn't say they couldn't touch it. She's added to God's word. Let's carry on. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At this point, for the first time in all creation, another voice is heard. Up to now, only God's voice is heard. And you remember last week we looked at how we were designed to be believers. We're always looking around, scratching around, trying to make sense of life. Why do I feel like this? Where do I go for my answers? Who am I? What's the world about? And all the answers are supposed to come from the one who made us, God, the creator. It is his word that is supposed to rule us. We're supposed to live under his word, depend on him for our common sense and our identity, honour him. 
as we enjoy him giving us that, we honour him and go, whoa, Lord, you've given us everything we need. And in fact, we've got the Bible verse that sort of sums that up from Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, this is in the previous chapter, you are free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God put constraints on their relationship and said, you're free, you've got abundance. But remember, at the end of the day, I am the creator, you are the created. If you get ideas above your station, everything will break. Death. And they were happy for a while, and then this other voice comes in. Satan and the person, or the serpent, the person of Satan, comes in. We're not told where he came from, but merely that he is a creature. He hasn't got the power of God, but don't make any mistakes. He's got power when he tells lies. Because we have a temptation to believe it. And look what he does, verse 1. He tries to bring doubt. Did God really say? A lot of mileage in that one, isn't it? Just a subtle doubt coming in. Did God really say that? Then he flat out denies what God says. Can you see that in verse 4? You will not surely die. Turn against God and do your own thing, and you will not surely die. There's a stack of mileage in that one, isn't there? In fact, every sin that we've taken on, we're like, no, no, God won't really. Oh, you can't go to God and say, oh, I was only messing. It doesn't work like that with God. And Satan here flat out denies that God will follow through on what he says. You turn against God, and you will die. I took a funeral this week. And the reason that that person died, according to the doctors, was old age. But according to the Bible, it was because they, like everybody else who's got breath in their body, were a sinner. There's no such thing as dying of cancer or dying of old age. You only die for one reason. You die because sin has broken everything. And Satan was flat out lying. He denies God, God's word. And every single day, you and I have got the reminder that Satan was lying. Yeah, we still like to believe his lies, don't we? What else moved on? Verse 5. Distrust. You can see it here. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, listen, listen. God's just trying to hold you back. He's trying to, you could live so much more. You need to get out from under his shadow. He's holding stuff back. Live a little. He's a killjoy. You've grown above him. Live a little. And of course that's like music to their ears, isn't it? Now at this point, at this point, Eve should have been shouting, You what? I've got a husband who loves me. I've got an abundance. I look at all the beauty of creation. Everything is amazing. I've got no hurt and pain. I'm totally fulfilled. I'm fully loved. And he's the Lord, don't you know? Turn against him. Are oh, you stupid, you little creature? But is she doing that? And she's flat out disobeys. And I think this is the saddest verse in the whole Bible. With the possible exception of when we find that Jesus, what Jesus has to do at the cross to undo it. But in verse 6 we see, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And in that moment, the whole universe was changed in a second. 
You remove the one who holds everything together. You take him out and try and live as if he's not that. Everything, everything breaks. So we see the ugliness of sin. You see, as the, as the woman listens, sin promised freedom and wholeness and advancement, but all it delivers is brokenness. Let's read it again together, verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And last week we saw four things about the way God had created. He created people to be imagers, we'll talk about that in a minute, worshippers, believers and relators. And each one of those four things are broken in that moment. So we were made to image forth God, to be like him. We said to be in the image of God is to, is to act in a way that he would, to do what he would do in a situation, to act with love and grace and consideration and, and just to be a, a mini-me of God, a small imitation of the real thing. Now, why did God not want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good, excuse me, good and evil? Because surely it is good for them to know the difference between right and wrong. In fact, he's taken time to tell them the difference between right and wrong. But the knowledge of good and evil here refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, because God's already told them that. They know what's right and wrong. But rather deciding, deciding for themselves what is right or wrong. Their sin here is not so much that they broke a rule. Their sin here is that they have become rule makers, not just rule breakers. They've basically said, I don't want to image God. I want to be God and decide what's right for me. I want to rebel against him, sort his authority. I'll decide what's best. I have the right to do what I want. I want to control and I hate being controlled. And it is that brash and it is that ugly. And in that moment, those who were supposed to image God became rebels. Dirty little conspirators against his gracious, loving rule. And everything gets broken. What about worshippers? They were supposed to worship God and say everything that he gave was pleasing because it came from him. And in the, in the previous two chapters, there was the language about how he had met the longings of their heart, provided everything for them. He had done it through his stuff. And that's all worship language. And the thing is now, we notice about ourselves that we will adore and give glory to whatever we think will provide and keep us safe. So on Saturday nights, we're encouraged to believe the promise of celebrity. Get on X Factor. Britain's got talent. Because if you can be one of those people, it will provide for your every want and you will be kept safe. I think we all know that it breaks and yet we still want it, don't we? Or else it's believing and worshipping the idea that if I just get the right relationship or I have the right amount of money, that will provide for my needs and that will keep me safe. But in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was supposed to be God who provided for the needs. Forget like a car, forget like something nice, forget like the idea of celebrity. No, it's God who provides for the needs and it is God who keeps people safe. And so what they've done now is no longer do they trust God to be their ruler and their provider. They turn to something within the creation and start worshipping it. 
They listen to the creation and don't see beyond. And it's been the same ever since. Their worship is broken. And whenever you worship anything other than the true and living God, it hurts you. He's the only one who brings full provision and full safety. On top of that, there's broken believers. We were made to be believers. Okay? We were made, made, meant to listen to what God's angle on who we are is and live in the light of that. But what did she do? She believed lies. Adam believed lies. Lies about God and lies about themselves. You notice in verse 6 there, you know, she saw that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. I can make sense of myself myself. I can look at myself in the mirror and really have figured it all out. I can look at life and really have figured it all out. I don't need God to help me make sense of me and the world. I'll do it on my own. Who needs his word? I'm not interested. And so what happens is that we don't just believe God's voice, we'll believe almost any voice. And there's an awful lot of people paid an awful lot of money to give you their ideas about what life's supposed to be about. And none of it quite hits the mark. And the Bible says if you're somebody who listens firstly to a voice other than God, then you are a four-letter word. The Bible calls you a fool. Listening to any voice above God's voice makes you foolish. You are a fool. And being a fool is like going along to a, a carnival, looking at one of those bendy carnival mirrors, you know those ones that make you go all over the place and wobbly, looking at that and saying, I see myself finally clearly. And you're the only one who can, can't see that that's not what you look like. And that's not what life is really all about. You think you know best, you're convinced of it, that you see clearly, but you're the only one who doesn't know better. We replace God's wisdom with our own. And it wrecks us and it wrecks our lives. Finally as well, they were relators. You can see this here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. If we were made, we were made to relate to God with one another. So the second we turn away from that, as soon as God isn't right at the centre of the way we do relationships, our sin and our brokenness spills out onto those around us. My sin always piles out onto those around me and it damages them. Now if you don't believe me, look at my kids. You want to see my sin, look at my kids. I love to look at them. I love to be around them and see them because in so many ways there's so many great things about them but then I watch them squabble and, and scratch each other's eyes. I watch their insecurities and their fears. I look at the way that when there isn't somebody watching them they'll put a slide dig in. I watch them do that and I think they've learned that from me because my sin piles out onto those around me. So when I don't behave rightly in my marriage, it affects my wife. When I don't behave correctly and, and, and humbly in the church, it has great effect on you. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Because we're in that tight relationship, when we sin, it, it just causes brokenness and collapse in relationship. So what do these four things tell us? Look, broken images, broken worshippers, broken believers, broken relators. It tells us this. You and I may sometimes think that we just do sin. 
And all along, sin is laughing at to say, actually, I'm doing you. Because sin is like a virus that gets inside us. Once you open the door to it and it comes in, it wrecks and breaks everything. So some of you ask me, why can't I make sense of this week I'm facing? Why am I struggling with my death? Why can't I get on with that person? Why am I feeling so ill? And the answer to all of that is, that its root cause is, sin. Broken relationship with God. And of course we want to do what Adam and Eve did, which was pass the book, blame somebody else, accuse and say, well, it wasn't really my fault. And the Bible says, yes it is. And yes it was. I was watching the other day, uh, it was yesterday afternoon, it was my favourite Agatha Christie. I'm not into big Agatha Christie's, but you know, when you've got Peter Euston off playing Hercule Poirot on the death on the Nile, everything stops for me. I have to watch that at least once a year, otherwise I don't feel quite whole. That's not quite right. But in Death on the Nile, there's this scene where Hercule Poirot, the all-wise detective, has a word with one of the lady characters in there who is in the midst of a web of betrayal, disappointment, bitterness and revenge. And he's trying to talk her out of it, and he's trying to get her to see sense and he could have quoted out the Bible. It's not quite a powerful quote, but it sums it up. And this is what he said to her. And I'm not going to try to put on the Belgian accent. But he says this. Once you open the door to evil, you find evil takes up residence in your heart. Now, I actually wrote that down on a piece of paper, that quote. Jane found it on a Friday. Found that it, 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 I, I had to grab a piece of paper and write it down. <laughs> And she'd got something written for her at the top of this piece of paper, and right underneath, left in the middle of the kitchen for, on her return, was that once you open the door to evil, evil takes up residence in your heart. She got on the phone, What have I done? But yeah, yeah. anyway, general truth, and not just about you, okay? Not just about you. Yeah? And we know those things to be true. And so, what we do is we see total breakdown here. Total breakdown moves on. Let's move on to the next page. Can you see it here? Where are we? Now this total breakdown is what happens when we see pictures of shattered relationships here. And what we see here is charted the total breakdown of relationships that God built into his world. Now, you need to realise that this isn't just a natural consequence. It is, but it's also God doing it. It's a judicial sanction. Why is that so important? Because he is too loving and too passionate for his own glory and those whom he's created to allow brokenness to work. And you need to know, and I need to know, that you cannot cut yourself off from the God of the Bible without there being consequences. You don't mess with God. He's God. We're not. And all of us, I know even as I say that, there's a resistance in there. Who's God anyway? He's God! You're not, I'm not. But you want to be, don't you? You're not God. He is. God himself has ordained that any attempt to displace the light of the living God brings with it the punishment of death. And rightly so. Look what happens to God's people here. You can see, you know, I have to cross them out here. You know, what was there has broken. God's people, they were trusting and intimate, Adam and Eve, and all of that has gone, 
and is replaced by self-justifying blame game. The joy of their complementary relationship, the thing that they enjoyed and celebrated, their differences one with another, all of that is broken and is replaced with pain, struggle, power games, right at the heart of their relationship. That's why relationships are so hard. So she no longer submits to her husband's loving, kind and gentle rule over her. And part of the reason for that is because he's no longer willing to exercise a loving, self-sacrificial lead like God had intended. And they blame one another. You know the old rhyme, don't you? Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. It all breaks down. It's all wrecked. What about God's place? Before it was a place of abundance and provision and joy and bounty and beauty, and now it's become inhospitable. There's work and there's toil, there's thorns, there's pain, there's struggle. You see, if you lived in Eden and the alarm goes off, woo! Off to work. Anybody ever done that this week? Oh. And you're dreaming of catching it until 8 o'clock kicks around you can watch Coronation Street and have a rest. Harmony between human beings and the created order is broken. It will be a struggle. And in verse 23 there, we find that they're actually kicked out of Eden. Remember what the word Eden means? Encourage my heart from last week. What does Eden mean? Eden means... Starts with a duh. Ten points. Delight. They're kicked out of, banished from delight, soul satisfaction. The, the funny thing is there, though, that if there had been two gates out of Eden, you can be absolutely sure they would have stormed out of different ones, wouldn't they? It's not speaking to each other, muttering under their breath about how it was the other person's fault that they'd been kicked out. Facing up to their responsibilities? No. And then there's the sharing and enjoying of God's blessing and rule. That's all utterly broken. They're alienated from God. They're cut off from the one who they were made by to depend upon. And so nowadays they'll just depend on anything. And so we see humanity broken. But I want you to notice how the punishment here fits the crime. God gave them what they wanted. Can I tell you to be very, 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 very cautious about asking God to give you what you want. If God gives you what you want, disaster is probably not far around the corner. Because we tend to think we know what's best and we tend to want to play God. And when we do, it ends up in brokenness. And it was a just punishment. May God save us from giving us what we want. Because in our nation, we need to pray. Because in our nation, people want God off our tellies. They want God out of the schools. They want God out of their laws. They want God out of their families. And they want God out of their lives. If God gives us that, can I tell you that we are going headfirst down the pan? But even in the midst of this, God can't help himself, can he? In the midst of this, he has to be gracious. He just can't stop. Verse 9, possibly the loneliest cry in the Bible. Can you see it there? But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? Can you sense the pain and anguish in his heart? It's like, what have you done to yourselves? What have you done to me? You've lost now. Where? It's not that he geographically didn't know that they were hiding behind the second bush on the right. He knew where they were. But what have they done to themselves? Verse 14. 
He cursed Satan and promises, verse 15, a hope. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That word offspring or seed, not seed plural, it's the promise that one day a seed, a person will come from your offspring who will be able to crush what Satan has done. Who will be able to bring hope. Who will be able to crush the power of Satan's lies, replace it with truth. And, and whereas Satan did the easy thing, which is leads to the breaking of stuff, this one will be so big and so powerful that he will so crush Satan that everything will be restored. And they had to wait a long time for that promise to come, didn't they? And we're still waiting for its total fulfilment. Who's he talking of there? You know, Jesus. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and the wife and his wife and clothed them. You see here, they, they need skins to cover their shame and their guilt. And to do it, something has to die. Animal has to be killed so that they can have a covering for their sin and guilt. Now that animal didn't actually pay for their sin and cover their guilt. But that animal dying did point to something. It pointed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. It pointed to how God would have to come to pay for their sin, to deal with their shame, and to give them a covering. And he paid in blood. See, we see in here that the need is not self-improvement. They can't just sort of say, whoops-a-daisy, let's try again. No, everything is wrecked and that all that will do it to fix it is salvation and rescue. So if you would, just flick over your, just flick over here. I'll come back to that path. You can see where they are. You see the little picture? In creation, there's Adam and Eve under God's blessing and it's a downward, it's a downward track. But there is the promise that one day somebody would come who will crush the work of Satan. I'm going to speed up and... Sorry, I've, I've got you to flick forward. Can you flick back again to that table very quick? I'm going to have to race through. Because if there was total breakdown in the garden, we've got to do four chapters in about... Four, sorry, uh, eight chapters in about four minutes. We can do that. Everything goes from bad to worse. Uh, where's my bit of rice? In Genesis 4 through to 11... We're not, we haven't got time to stop very long, but I've given you a summary of it, and I'd encourage you to go away and read all the stories for yourself. But in Genesis 4 to 11, there's the charting of the spread of sin as its effects sort of seep into the whole of humanity altogether, and how all of this actually brings judgment upon people. But I want you to notice the pattern as we go through it, okay? The pattern is, people wreck stuff through their sin and turning away from God, and God rightly brings judgment upon them, And yet, in each of these stories, there's a hint of things to come. Because there's the hint of God's grace and his mercy. He can't just... He just won't leave it. You and me would. I've had enough of them. Not talking to them. But not him. So in Genesis chapter 4, verses... Oh, you can see it there. Cain, you see the first example of fratricide. Brotherly murder. Did you know that most murders that happen in the UK are carried out by an immediate relative to the murderee? You you can ask, you know, go down and ask at the Old Bailey, they'll tell you. Most people in the UK get murdered by people who are in their very close family. And we find that because he was jealous, Cain killed Abel. And God judges him and drives him out 
so that he is alone and he is isolated and yet in the midst of that there is mercy because God preserves his life and at the same time gives Eve um, more children many generations that follow and so the brokenness of Cain is limited and not carried on so that there could still be hope of rescue Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 to 3 flick, flick over in your Bibles and we'll just read it very quickly When men begin to in, began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. So they're running rampant riots in whatever they jolly well please and God brings a judgment upon them, which is to say, I've got to limit this damage so I'll limit the number of years that they get. But even in his mercy, he doesn't wipe them out. He gives them 120 years, a stay of execution for them to experience his grace and his mercy and his favour. Do you know the only reason why this world is still spinning at the moment in its current form is God is giving time for people like you and me to receive his mercy, repent, and lay hold of his salvation? See, why doesn't God stop all the wars and stop all the pain and all the anguish and all the misery? And so, because if he did, he would have to stop you as well, because you're part of the problem. And 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that God one day will wrap things up. But I tell you, I'm glad he didn't wrap it up 20 years ago, just before I became a believer. Because otherwise I'd be lost for all eternity. I'm talking about this in baptism group, you know, a few people are going to be getting dipped next week because the Lord's been gracious to them and called them to, called them to himself. If the Lord had come back in the middle of last year, before they trusted in him, they'd be lost. The Lord gives mercy there, 120 years, stay of execution. Then you've got the story of Noah, Genesis 6 through to Genesis 9, and human wickedness is great, verses 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Did you realise it's possible to hurt God? I'm not talking about irritating, I'm talking about actually fill his heart with pain as we reject him. And so God sends a flood, which effectively was a reversal of everything that had been created. Everything goes, removes, uh, goes from being, well, it was formless, God created the world wonderfully, and now when it's flooded, it's like a reversal, and it's going back to before. It's almost like God is having a start over again. But in the midst of that, God rescues Noah. Do you wonder why they call it an ark? Do you know what the word ark means? It doesn't mean boat. It means chest. It was as if God bums Noah in a place where he would be safe. A wooden chest where he would be safe from the judgment. Where the judgment that he deserved wouldn't come against him. Because God had saved him. It talks in, in Genesis chapter 7 of, of how God locks Noah in the ark. He locks him into safety. So that there could still be hope left. God rescues Noah and his family. Uh, in a virtually new creation. Uh, let's jump over to the last one there, Genesis chapter 11. You've got the Tower of Babel where people said together in a concerted effort, we will stand up. Are we okay? Good. We will stand together and build a place for ourselves. We will make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower up to the heavens to protect ourselves from God's rule. We will define ourselves, we will use our technology. Then we're trying to build a society with no God. Sound familiar? Where God is left out. And God said, uh-uh. 
I'm going to limit that brokenness by shattering you and scattering you before it can get too bad. But even in the midst of that, there's a promise, and what that promise is, we'll see next week. So turn over on your page, and what we're supposed to see here is that everything gets worse, sin perverts life, creating confusion, brokenness, frustration, and chaos, and our only hope is if God steps in to save. And from here on, this is, if you like, this is the split in the Bible. You know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. This is the split. From the end of Genesis chapter 11, it's gone right downhill. You've seen it there. You see you've got the boat, you've got the Tower of Babel, the fall. It's broken. It's messed. From now on, this is the turning point. The rest of the Bible storyline will be asking the question, is God big enough to fix what we wrecked? Would he love us enough to fix what he has wrecked? How will he deal with those people who wrecked it? And that's why we spent so long looking into this. Very quickly, I just want to talk to you about God's kingdom style. A few things you need to spot about how God works. You see, despite the fact that people have sinned against him, God is still sovereign. Which means he's still in charge, he's still in control. Though God has been sinned against and victimised, he's not a helpless victim. He's the Lord of the universe. He can and does act to ensure his divine rule is unchallenged. The universe won't fly apart beyond what he allows it to fly apart. I'm thankful for that. God cannot allow humans to succeed in playing God's, but he limits the amount of damage we can do. And so now, basically, there are two kingdoms. Kingdom number one is where he is the Lord, but he is not treated as such. Is that the kingdom you live in? Where God is Lord of this world, but you just haven't recognised it and you're in for a shock. Or else there's the kingdom of God that is building through the Bible, which is where he is Lord as well. Of course he is. But he is trusted as that. Which way are you living? There's only, one, there's only two ways to live. One is, he is the Lord and I recognise it. The other is, he is the Lord, and I'm going to pretend he's not. But make no mistake, he is the Lord. He can do what he wants, and he can even bring mercy out of judgment. But he's still glorious as well, we can see that there. His glory is seen this time in contrast. Have you noticed how, when you go to, the, go to Tesco's, and you get Tesco value, uh, baked beans, and you have them on toast, and they make you balk? Doesn't me, anyway. Tesco Valley Bay beans, not good. What does it make you do? Long for Heinz varieties. By having what is... It gives you an instinct and a sense deep within you that surely there's got to be something better than this. And God's happy to play it that way, you know. He's happy to let people like you and me chase after other things which we say, if I get them, it'll be glorious, only for them to spoil and not fulfil their promises and we're left with an ache of emptiness and a distant sense of glory that we don't yet know God is still glorious and every now and again in those chapters he would give them a hint of his glory but it would seem so far away because we're made for his glory and his glory only he's still wise he limits the damage of our sin remember wisdom is the ability to hold stuff together 
so he draws a line and makes sure that things won't get any worse than they could be. I hate to shudder if he took the brakes, uh, I hate to think and I shudder at the thoughts of what he, it would be like if he took the brakes off my life and actually let me do some of the things that I want to do. But he restrains that. Not every society immediately implodes, not every human marriage is a total disaster. Some families hold together. God in his wisdom is big enough to hold together broken stuff. And if he didn't, this world would truly be hell on earth. But thankfully it's not. Oh, don't get me wrong, it's fragile. Life now is never stable. Sooner or later things seem to crumble. But his judgment always fits the crime and he's designed everything to give us a sense of our need of his rescue. That's why we call in this whole series greatest story ever told and talks about his kingdom of how God rescues people into his eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be crying out for at the end of this. And the best bit is that he's not only still sovereign, still glorious, still wise, but he's still gracious. I can tell you the room where I was sitting when I first opened these chapters of the Bible and read. And I started to read through and look at this. And I was literally moved to tears. And I moved to prayer. And I was like, Lord, why haven't you obliterated us? Why haven't you just wiped us away? Why do you still bear with us? Why don't you just write it off as a bad idea? We sin against you, yet you're so gentle in your judgment. You're even called to us. We attack you back and accuse you of all kinds and blame you and yet you don't fly off the handle. Even as you offer us a rescue, we spit at you and claim we're so wise. Why do you bother? Even as you're trying to do us good, we fight against you. Lord, is there no end to your graciousness? And despite the fact that we make it as hard for you, Lord, to do us good, you are determined to put things right and bring in an eternal kingdom. And of course, the rest of the Bible tells that story of how he goes about doing that. And so I want you to be amazed at God's graciousness today. As we consider the life of faith, I just want you to be amazed that God is so patient. In the life of faith, I suppose what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to hate sin because at the end of the day, sin is horrible because it wrecks us. But the real odiousness of sin is that it offends God who is so wonderful in his graciousness. So loving. And it just says, you're nothing to me. So if you're a Christian, you will hate sin. You'll hate the way it belittles him. You'll hate the way it denies him. You'll hate the way it rejects his love. You'll recognise that sin is the biggest problem. And that's important, isn't it, as when we put this Noah's Ark community centre together, we'll see all kinds of problems that need to be dealt with, but we need to keep the main one, the big one, at the focus. Because the big thing is that people need a saviour from the consequences of their sin. And if ever we forget that that is the biggest problem, then we will we'll be sinning against God again. But I suppose the other right response to this is that we should long for salvation. Long for his grace and mercy. You see, there's only one thing that God owes us, and that's destruction. And yet, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he offers us salvation. 
And so if you're a true believer sitting here today, then you're, for you, this is the way to tell whether you're a true believer. The most precious thing in your life is that that same God whom you have offended would give his life to save you. And there'll be days when you scarce can take it, I think. But he would die to save you and me. There's the story of um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was one of the greatest preachers down in London of last century. People would flock by the thousands to hear. He would have an international writing ministry. He had books written about him. He had countless books written. He was listened to by just about everybody. But there's the story told about as he moved into his older years... And he was very infirm. He was, I think he was into his late 70s, early 80s, and he was bedridden. And all the people who used to go and visit him to find out what he had to say about things stopped visiting. And he wasn't able to go and stand in front of the crowds of thousands and preach the message. And somebody went to him and asked him, and they said, listen, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with the fact that you're not so prominent anymore, that you're not the centre of attention? And he simply quoted a a verse from the New Testament where Jesus speaks to people and he says, Rejoice not that the demons submit to you. Rejoice instead that your name is written in the book of life. If you're a true believer here today, other things would be nice. Maybe that you've got a nice family. Maybe that you've got money in the bank. Maybe that things are going your way. But the thing that will be most precious to you is that God in Jesus Christ is your saviour. And that he would save one such as you. So let me ask you, is he your hope and your joy? Is he the thing that makes you sing? If he is, that's a pretty good sign that he's at work, got his hand on you and rescuing you. So with quietness and humility, we're going to sing a song all about this. Fiona, would you click the button for us, please? You can see the words written up there. Two sins have we committed. Two sins have we committed. Two sins that we cannot deny. We've turned from you the fount of living water and have tried to drink from cisterns cracked and dry. Chorus goes, what fools we are. You can see it there. How blind we are. Have mercy, Lord. Mercy on us. James is going to play it through once without us singing, and then we'll just give you a time to pray quickly and quietly before we do that. And then I'll call us all to stand, and we'll sing it worshipfully and thankfully that God is just so merciful and gracious. <laughs>